Welcome to the Strata Leadership Show, a podcast designed to help you gain clarity, lead effectively, and drive results for yourself, your team, and your organization. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Miller. Today we have a special guest on our podcast, and I always look forward to the conversations with our guests, but today has been a day that I've been looking forward to with a special anticipation, because in the world that I live in, there are people that you just look at and you think, uh, wow, what they're doing is just a, a dream, that what they're doing has to be one of the most fascinating jobs that there could be. And so I'm really thankful to have uh, Dr. Kolditz with us today, former Brigadier General. There's a number of things that you can read about with this podcast pertaining to his life. He's also uh, leading and as, as a founder of the uh, Door Institute for New Leaders at Rice University which is um, ranked as one of the top places in the world for leadership development. But the conversation I really want to have today is with him about his life, about what's happening at the Door Institute, and about a new book that is coming out uh, soon that uh, I think will be of interest to a lot of people. So General Kolditz, thank you for being a part of the show and welcome. My pleasure, Nathan. Thanks for inviting me. So this show, we really try to talk about life in a way that is as informal as we, as we can to create a community where people can find a good place to listen to leaders talk about life. So tell us a little bit about your life, where you grew up and, and how you made your way into realizing that you could serve as a leader. Yeah, well, I grew up in a small town in Southern Illinois, 1,800 people. It's called New Athens, which reads like New Athens, but it's Southern Illinois. So it's New Athens and uh, it's about 60 miles from St. Louis, Missouri. When you grow up in a small town like that, there's a lot of expectation for you to lead, particularly if your parents are involved in any kind of leadership. And my parents were, my dad was on the school board. My mother was a, a nurse who was not working as a nurse after my brother and I were born, but she led every club in the town. She did a lot of work, uh, free nursing for people who needed their blood pressure taken or needed injections or what have you. So I grew up in an environment where it was expected that you led. My brother and I were both Eagle Scouts. My father got his Eagle Scout in 1942. So it was an environment where people learned to lead. And at the time, I thought I was somebody special. You know, I thought that the reason I was leading is that I was some sort of natural born leader. But after I graduated, I went to Vanderbilt University as an undergrad. And after I graduated, I went to grad school in psychology. And what one of the things I really learned in grad school was that, you know, behaviors like leadership are learned. There aren't natural born leaders. They simply don't exist. That what happens is people pick it up along the way. And I can remember as a five-year-old boy, five or six years old, I was in first grade and my first grade teacher would pull me aside and say, okay, Tommy, you know, I need you to go out on the playground and bring the kids back in from recess and don't be bossy, but let's help me get them all in here. And uh, that was leader development. I didn't realize it at the time, of course, but I learned from a very young age that leadership was valuable, that it was a community responsibility. 
if you're given that skill and that ability and, uh, you know, you're put in a position to use it, that you really do owe that to people. And so from the very beginning, leadership was as much an obligation to me as any kind of privilege. I love the backstories of people's lives. And so your dad as an Eagle Scout, your mom as a leader in so many ways, serving people. And then even in elementary school, picking up on that opportunity that leaders can make a difference. So you you make your way to Vanderbilt, which is uh, one of the world's premier schools and it has some great programs there. And then you complete that, go on to grad school. Tell us more about what was happening as you began exploring the idea of uh, psychology, leadership, and, and some of the interplay there. Yeah, so I really wanted to be a psychologist. That's what I thought I wanted to do with my life. And uh, in order to go to Vanderbilt, I had to have a scholarship. And so I took an ROTC scholarship, an Army ROTC scholarship. And when it came time to graduate from Vanderbilt and go on active duty, I didn't really want to do it because it wasn't popular in the 70s to be in the Army. You know, this is recently post-Vietnam. And so I decided, well, you know, if I went to grad school, then I could probably be a psychologist in the Army. And so I went to the University of Missouri. I stayed out four years in a program they called Educational Delay. I had to pay my own way, but virtually all my tuition was waived and I was a teaching assistant so I could eat. And when I got out, I I thought the Army was gonna make me a psychologist. And they said, well, actually we need more field artillerymen right now. And so we're going to send you to a combat tactical unit, and that's how you're going to start in the Army. You know, I told my wife, I said, this isn't really what I was looking for. You know, I'll probably just get out. And as it turned out, the first person I reported to in the Army was a former West Point basketball player who played for Coach K when Mike Krzyzewski was the basketball coach at West Point. And he was all about leadership and he taught me all about it. And I realized then that my PhD in psychology was actually a really great lens through which I could view my own leadership and the leadership of the people around me in a profession where leadership is probably the most valued attribute in any person in the army. I mean, the army's fanatical about the need for quality leadership. So I just went from assignment to assignment And I was either leading myself, you know, leading soldiers in a regular troop unit, or I was in something much more cerebral. And I think it's because I had a PhD, but I was in the human resources director of the Pentagon working for the chief of HR for the Army. I was a general's aide at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I worked in the Center for Army Leadership at Fort Leavenworth doing performance appraisal testing. So it was this continuous back and forth between actually doing leadership and like everyone kind of fumbling through it in the beginning and then being in a job where I could think very deeply about leadership in the army where some of the people around me were making decisions for 800,000 soldiers at a time. It was just a very constructive way to learn about leadership and leader development. So you, you have these experiences, you, you're finding your way uh, in the Army. I know in time you would be able to teach for a number of years at West Point and places like that. This is a long way away from the small town that you grew up in. Was this time just incredibly exciting? Was it, how did you feel about all that? 
Well, it was exciting, you know, to live in Germany for three years and much of our training and much of my vacation time was spent on the German countryside. I learned German pretty quickly because everyone in our little small town had a German background. And so that was exciting. You know, being with people who were not small town Illinois people was incredibly developmental for me. And even now, when I see some of my friends and others who have lived their entire lives in one place, even not traveling very much from there. It's hard for me to imagine having an understanding of the world that didn't involve a lot of moving around. When my wife and I moved to Rice University in Houston, it was our 16th move. And so when you live in all these different places, you learn a lot about diversity and how other people think and how other societies run and manage problems. So the whole experience for me was really developmental. Did you always have that growth mindset uh, or was that something that you were developing during this time to be able to look at these things as opportunities for growth? Well, you know, I, I mean, I've, I, I've never thought very much about that. But as I think about it now, I think the real jumpstart was Vanderbilt to be in a top tier university. And Vanderbilt is not a Tennessee school, even though it's in Nashville. I mean, there were as many people from New Jersey and Chicago and New York City as there were from the South. And so it was a very cosmopolitan environment. I remember going there. V Vanderbilt is an expensive place to go. And consequently, there are some fairly privileged people in the student body, others as well. But I mean, when I went there, I thought I was a rich kid. I thought I was from a rich family. And it took me about two weeks to realize that, you know, my family is probably barely middle class, but in our small town, we had everything we needed, you know, and everything that we wanted. And so it was just eye-opening aspects of being in a more cosmopolitan and diverse environment that really jump-started that curiosity about what's around the corner. What's it like to live in Germany for three years? What's it like to live in Korea for two years, which we also did, my whole family did. So yeah, I, I think it started with a liberal arts education, just like a lot of people's lives really begin to blossom after they get that kind of degree. And I would uh, say for the listeners who don't have a reason to be familiar with Vanderbilt, uh, Vanderbilt is one of the top universities in the world, but one of the areas of specific focus that they've had over the last few decades is human development and leadership and have been the uh, front runners then the trailblazers in that field. And I'm sure that they are very proud at Vanderbilt to be able to see what you've done with your career and now with the Door Institute. So, so you find your way through all of that, and then you find that one of the ways that you can help develop additional leaders is through education. And so how did that uh, become a part of your life where you found that investing in, in people's lives and, and something that I think that you say, General Colditz, that is a bit unusual is that you really look at leadership development through the lens of individual development of a specific person that you value coaching is my understanding and things like that, which is at the heart of education. When did you realize that that was a good intersection for you, that leadership and investing in the lives of other people was a good fit as an educator? Well, there were really two inflection points. The first one was when I left the tactical army and I went to West Point to be a department chair in behavioral sciences and leadership. That was a big switch. I mean, I was standing on the demilitarized zone in the Republic of Korea when I made that decision. 
in the tactical army, I had a, a pretty good career. I had two early promotions and but I decided that the best way for me to integrate all of my talents and all of my education would be to go to West Point in uniform and work with other PhDs and do some teaching and development. And I learned a lot about how to get the job done there because that is a very pragmatic school. There's no symbolically developing people as leaders. You know, our graduates were going to take 30 or 40 of other people's children into combat zones. And so the leader development is a very serious matter there. And then when it came time to leave, being in proximity with New York City, and I'd written a book, and the book was about crisis, and it came out just before the 2008 banking crisis. And so I spent a lot of time in the city at Goldman Sachs and some of the other places, banks, doing crisis leadership. So I decided in 2012 or 2011, actually, that I'd retire in 2012. I thought I would go to New York City and be a leader developer for a company. And so I had taken a sabbatical for a year, 2006 to 2007, at Yale. And I worked with a well-known leadership professor there named Jeffrey Sonnenfeld. So I called Jeff Sonnenfeld, who's always been very kind to me, and he's a brilliant guy. And I said, Jeff, uh, would you be willing to write me a letter of recommendation? Because I'm going to go down to the city and be a leader developer. And he said, well, yeah, but why don't you come to Yale instead? And I said, well, you know, it never occurred to me. I don't really want to be a professor. I'm a leader developer. And he said, no, no, no. He said, you know, we want you to build a leadership program in the business school here. But you also want to be a professor if you're at Yale because Yale's run by professors. You know, it's, it's just where you want to be positioned. So I wound up going to Yale and, and spending four years building their program. And then a headhunter came calling for John Doerr and for Rice University. And I wound up leaving Yale to go down there to found the Doerr Institute. And I'm so glad that you did. Uh, Rice University, like Yale, has produced an amazing number of people who have made life better for the people. So looking at the, the Door Institute, can you tell us a little bit about that? And then I would love to hear more about the book that you uh, have written with some colleagues and really focus on uh, higher education. So if you could tell us about the Door Institute, when I went to um, pursue my doctorate in leadership, the Door Institute or something like that didn't exist. And I think I'm jealous because I look at what you have now and I think this is an amazing thing that you're building. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Well, both John Doerr and his wife, Ann, are Rice graduates. And John is a well-known venture capitalist who had the vision to put the money under Google and Amazon.com, Drugstore.com, Netflix. I mean, you know, he has really picked a lot of tech companies to put his money under, and then they've, they've done very well. So John's feeling was that he got a wonderful education at Rice, but he didn't get enough preparation as a leader. And he found himself using headhunters to find leaders for companies when the big idea was coming from someone else, but they just didn't have the leadership skills. So what he wanted to do is create the conditions at Rice for two things to happen. The first thing is he wanted to create circumstances where a student could have a powerful leader development experience at Rice. Not average, but truly exceptional. And then secondly, he wanted the person running the institute to figure out how to make all boats rise. 
because he would look across our country and be disappointed with the leadership that he saw in business and government and the social sector. And he thought that by having an institute that could impact across the country, that it would be a contribution in education, similar to the way that Google was a contribution in tech and, and Netflix was a contribution in entertainment. So that was the idea. When I went to Rice, there was nothing there. There was not a, an office for me or for my assistant. I only had one other person at the time. Now there's 93 that work in the Institute in various ways. So it was really a blank slate. And what we wound up proposing to the doors to President David Lebron, President Rice, was that we would basically create an executive quality leader development enterprise. We weren't going to teach courses. We weren't really going to do research per se, but that we would use evidence-based techniques. We would use professional people and we would measure our outcomes, which was the science part of it for us, which was very important because Rice is an R1 research university and, and the faculty at Rice expect, and, and rightly so, that programs prove their worth and that there's evidence. So we started with a 12-person coaching pilot And the next semester, we raised that number to 266. And we've been doing it now for four years. And uh, last year, we coached 850 students. And Rice's undergraduate population is only about 3,900. We also work with graduate students. And that was, for us, the big sleeper. I mean, grad students, really, nobody pays attention to that. They go to the labs, they work hard, and then they go home and eat dinner and do it all the next day. But when we offered the same kind of opportunities to graduate students in biochemistry and music and MBAs as well, but grad students in fields where obviously it would be good to be a great team leader, they've jumped at the chance. And they are just as enthusiastic as undergraduates are at working with us at door. Thank you for giving the backstory to that and very exciting stuff. And I I just love what you're doing. Several years ago, I did a, a program at Vanderbilt that was one of those week-long summer intensive types of things, and it was for leadership and higher education. And then while we were there, they had a study that they had been working on for quite a long time that they were just releasing. And the professor that was sharing the information, he said, you know, this is kind of an embarrassing thing, but he said, we've been really researching what is it that allows some universities to be able to produce these high achieving people. And what is it about our university or other people's universities that really open that up? And they said, you know, what we found in our research was it's more about who we recruited than what we actually did. And he said, what we found is that if we recruit great people and then don't mess them up while they're in school, they tend to do great things. And he said, that's a bit of a challenge for us because we would like to think that what we have done is to really shape them as future leaders. And what we found is that we can mess them up, but we've not necessarily done a lot to make them a lot better. So I remember that conversation so vividly because I loved the honesty and transparency about it. But what you're writing to in your book, Leadership Reckoning, and the stuff that you are are focusing on 
is to approach this from a different perspective, specifically for universities who often make claims of being able to do great things of developing leaders. And you're really looking at, well, then how do they do that? Uh, what does that mean? Can you give us some of the passion that is a part of that for you and what that Google level type of thing or Amazon level type of thing uh, is? That Because when you talk about changing the idea behind what universities are doing, that is a tremendously exciting opportunity and thought. Can you give us some more about what that is? Well, sure. I mean, in the last 20 years, there's been a huge amount of work done in training and development and specifically around developing leaders. And for the most part, universities have not caught up. And consequently, they have usually the same mission or vision statement that they've always had that invokes the fact that part of their contribution to society is creating leaders. When we studied that, though, what we found is that most of what they do doesn't create leaders. There's a lot of career development work. There's some networking work, but that's not leader development. And many of the top tier schools, you're right, they bring in talented people, then they network them and get them into the, the key jobs where they flounder as a leader. And we've come to expect, I think, pretty low performance from leaders in our country. In fact, at Rice, we took the same measures that we use to measure outcomes in the students who work with us. And we gave those same measures to 2,300 students who got their degree, went through Rice, but didn't do any leader development, either with the Door Institute or any one of a number of possible centers or groups. And what we found is they don't improve at all. They've got the same level of leadership capacity as they had when they were freshmen. And grad students by their fifth year are actually worse than when they came to the university if they don't work on it. And we've given that result to a lot of people and really none of them are too surprised. They're like, well, yeah, I guess if you don't work on something, you don't get better at it. But I think there was for a while a presumption that getting a four-year degree automatically made you a better leader than somebody who doesn't have a degree. And as it turns out, that's simply not true. So what we tried to do was be very practical in the way that we develop people and fanatical about measuring our outcomes. Because we found a lot of things that we could do or that many universities do that don't make a difference. For example, you know, speaker series. We can't get any kind of growth metric out of those. A lot of the retreats and the ropes courses and the, all the fun stuff that students just love, you know, they love it, but it doesn't make them better. And uh, we have found some things that are very reliable at increasing a student's leader identity, their overall capacity to lead. One-on-one -on -one coaching is probably the most effective thing we've found to get reliable, objective outcomes. You know, it's been so fascinating to me to watch what's happening in the world of coaching and what you're doing, again, for people listening in, what he's doing and the team there is doing has not been done before. And to really be doing this groundbreaking work that has the capacity for changing how we learn, or in some ways, even returning us back to how we learned before when you had faculty who were that engaged in, in the lives of the students. What he's describing is truly a revolutionary thing. And so if you look at the idea of 
coaching. How does that process work at DOOR? So it's really pretty simple. We engage professional certified coaches, International Coach Federation certified coaches in the Houston business community. And we hire them as vendors and we pair them with Rice students. And the Rice student then makes arrangements to meet with their coach and they meet with them for a semester, usually four or five sessions. And um, we offer that to every graduate and undergraduate student in the school who wants it. So it's an executive quality experience. We have a very lean business model. And the way that this has turned out is that it costs about half as much as classroom instruction to do high quality leader development work like that because most of it is done by vendors. And so we're not paying retirement benefits or health care or anything like that. And we pay them essentially by the hour. So it allows us to coach, you know, maybe 400 students a semester for the equivalent cost of one senior faculty salary. And that, uh, is un, that is unbelievable. I, I, I cannot imagine having that experience. That is, that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. You know, and we don't pay coaches the same rates that they get from their executive clients, but we probably give them three to five times as many clients. And in the International Coach Federation, the more coaching you do and the more clients you have, the higher your rating is as you move your way up the chain. So our coaches uh, have a baseline of students, some as many as 10 a semester, and they also take on as many executive clients as they can entice. And so it, it creates a nice little lifestyle and a nice living for coaches. And most coaches have a lot of bandwidth. You know, very few coaches shake their heads and say, oh, gee, I couldn't take another client. And so we're, we're using that up and... Uh, it's terrific. We have about 40 coaches that work with us regularly and all of them are metric. We can tell you any semester, which one came in number one, which one came in number 40. It's just been a terrific process. And so many people told us at the beginning, they said, oh, you'll never be able to do this. It's going to cost too much. Everybody's going to want to coach. And so it'll, it'll get too big. But, you know, we targeted and hoped for about 30% of the student body because we wanted a tipping point. You know, we wanted to change the culture at Rice. And now we're, we're closer to 40% than we are to 30%. <laughs> it's, just, it's just overwhelming to me what you're doing and how exciting that would be as a student to have that level of thought partner at that pivotal time of life. Unbelievable. And for that matter, just the data you're collecting on what works with coaching. I mean, what will come from this over time is just amazing. Yeah, you know, we have a position in the Institute called the Managing Director for Measurement. And the gentleman who's in there now, Dr. Ryan Brown, was uh, hired by us out of tenure at Oklahoma University. He's a research psychologist and he was in a name chair at OU and he's a uh, he was a Rice undergraduate. And so we convinced him to come down and work for the Door Institute. And he has been unbelievably professional and creative about the measurement of leadership capacity. And he is now really a leader in that field. I mean, we've done work with the Obama Foundation, with KIPP schools, with Mansueto Ventures, which is Inc.com and Fast Company Magazine. And we're working right now with Fortune 
doing some multi-session workshop work for them in their Fortune Connect platform, which the last time we did it had about 45 handpicked leaders from the Fortune 500 that were going through that process. So all of that, and I credit Ryan Brown with in terms of our ability to make sure that we're making a difference because there's so many ways to work in leader development and simply entertain people and think that you're making them better leaders, but actually changing nothing about what they do or how they feel or how they think about leadership. Well, I love to hear that about Dr. Brown. He uh, and I were, were friends and uh, when he left from the University of Oklahoma, he was a bright star there. Matter of fact, we had a high-level leadership development program at the time that was designed for key city leaders. And so the question was, who should be in that group of about 25 people? And he was among the only faculty that his name came up again and again of this is someone who not only has the intellect to be able to do that job, he has the uh, humility to be able to communicate what he's learning. And so I love the two of you are uh, on that team making such a, a great difference. Wrapping up our time, and your time is so valuable, and I just feel so honored to be able to spend time with you, Dr. Kolditz. If you were talking to that uh, emerging leader who is wrestling with that identity, that I am transitioning from being that doer to the orchestrator of the doing, that they are going through that transition as a, a leader, that they are recognizing that they need to lead and they can lead. What advice would you give to them about perhaps some of the challenges facing leaders today that you think would be important for them to know? Yeah, so the first thing I would tell them is don't go it alone. There are great role models. There are people who will mentor you. And there are relatively inexpensive coaches who can coach you. And mentors and coaches are two very different things. You know, mentors give advice. Coaches help life pull out of you what your leadership capacity is. And so don't go it alone. You know, make sure that you have multiple mentors. You know, maybe you have a personal mentor and you have a, a finance mentor and you have a, you know, a mentor in the industry that you're in. The second thing I would tell them about leadership is don't get discouraged because nobody gets this right. I mean, nobody is a flawless leader, does not exist. So a lot of it has to do with bumps in the road and learn how you learn. As a leader, learn how you learn. Don't just learn to lead. Figure out what those critical crucible moments are in your life when you all of a sudden realize that you had the capacity to lead or you realized that something you had been doing was just not productive and so you changed. Learn how you learn and then your whole career is going to be nothing but growth. But if you allow yourself to simply be overcome with tasks and you're not intentional about it, you're not going to grow. And that can make for a painful and expensive proposition. Well, Dr. Kolditz, thank you for the time today. For those listening in, go on Amazon, find Leadership Reckoning, get that book, read it, pass it along to people who are in higher education who really want to make a difference. Because this is a book that I believe has the capacity for changing how we think about how we're developing future leaders. And there could not be in a more important time than now. And so check out that book, Leadership Reckoning. Dr. Kolditz, thank you for your service as a leader in the military. Thank you for your service to the future by developing the future leaders of our country and the world. 
Thank you for listening in to the Strata Leadership Show. We believe that it is the responsibility of leaders to make a difference, to fill a need, to set the pace. What you do matters. What you say matters and what you do matters. Today, go make a difference and elevate the life of someone else who's trying to make a difference. Thank you and have a great day.